As we continue our series through this book of Judges, we come this morning to Judges chapter 8, and I'd love to read it for us this morning. Judges chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Now the Ephraimites asked Gideon, why have you treated us like this? Why didn't you call us when you went to fight Midian? And they challenged him vigorously. But he answered them, what have I accomplished compared to you? Aren't the gleanings of Ephraim's grapes better than the full grape harvest of Abiezer? God gave Orb and Zeb, the Midianite leaders, into your hands. What was I able to do compared to you? At this, the resentment against him subsided. Gideon and his 300 men, exhausted yet keeping up the pursuit, came to the Jordan and crossed it. He said to the men of Sukkoth, Give my troops some bread. They are worn out, and I am still pursuing Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. But the officials of Sukkoth said, Do you already have the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna in your possession? Why should we give bread to your troops? Then Gideon replied, Just for that, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will tear your flesh with desert thorns and briars. From there he went up to Peniel and made the same request of them. But they answered as the men of Sukkoth had. So he said to the men of Peniel, When I return in triumph, I will tear down this tower. Now Zeba and Zalmunna were in Karkor with a force of about 15,000 men, all that were left of the armies of the eastern peoples, 120,000 swordsmen had fallen. Gideon went up by the route of the Nobads east of Noba and Jogbaha and attacked the unsuspecting army. Zeba and Zalmunna, the two kings of Midian, fled, but he pursued them and captured them, routing their entire army. Gideon, son of Joash, then returned from battle by the pass of Harry's. He caught a young man of Sukkoth and questioned him. And the young man wrote down for him the names of the 77 officials of Sukkoth, the elders of the town. Then Gideon came and said to the men of Sukkoth, Here are Zeba and Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me by saying, Do you already have the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna in your possession? Why should we give bread to your exhausted men? He took the elders of the town and taught the men of Sukkoth a lesson by punishing them with desert thorns and briars. He also pulled down the tower of Peniel and killed the men of the town. Then he asked Zeba and Zalmunna, what kind of men did you kill at Tabor? Men like you, they answered, each one had the bearing of a prince. Gideon replied, those were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As surely as the Lord lives, if you had spared their lives, I would not kill you. Turning to Jether, his oldest son, he said, kill them. But Jether did not draw his sword because he was only a boy and was afraid. Zeba and Zalmunna said, Come, do it yourself. As is the man, so is his strength. So Gideon stepped forward and killed them and took the ornaments off their camels' necks. The Israelites said to Gideon, Rule over us, you, your son, and your grandson, because you have saved us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And he said, I do have one request, that each of you give an earring from your share of the plunder. It was the custom of the Ishmaelites to wear gold earrings. They answered, We'll be glad to give them. So they spread out a garment, and each of them threw a ring from his plunder onto it. The weight of the gold rings he asked for came to 1,700 shekels, not counting the ornaments, the pendants, and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian or the chains that were on their camels' necks. Gideon made the gold into an ephod, which he placed in Ophrah, his town. All Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and his family. Thus Midian was subdued before the Israelites and did not raise its head again. 
During Gideon's lifetime, the land had peace 40 years. Jeroboam, son of Joash, went back home to live. He had 70 sons of his own, for he had many wives. His concubine, who lived in Shechem, and also bore him a son whom he named Abimelech. Gideon, son of Joash, died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of his father Joash in Ophrah of the Abiezrites. No sooner had Gideon died than the Israelites again prostituted themselves to the Baals. They set up Baal Barit as their god and did not remember the Lord their god who had rescued them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. They also failed to show any loyalty to the family of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, in spite of all the good things he had done for them. This is God's word. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We come with eagerness and expectation that you would speak to us. You would speak a word in season to each person in this room by your spirit and by your word. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Last week we covered perhaps one of the most well-known chapters in Judges and one of the best, uh, best known episodes from the life of Gideon. That is this great battle against Midian when God enables Gideon and his Israelites to defeat the Midianites with only 300 men. If you were here last week, you know the story. The Midianites had 135,000 men compared to Gideon and Israel, which numbered 300. They are outnumbered 450 to 1. And yet God enables them to win this battle without weapons, without lifting a hand except to blow their trumpets. They win this incredible battle against the Midianites. Judges 8, then, describes the aftermath of this battle. And as you are listening, if you've been with us for this uh, sketch on Gideon, these few chapters, you might have picked up that the Gideon of Judges 8 is very different than the Gideon of Judges 6 and 7. The Gideon before the battle against the Midianites is very different than the Gideon that we see here in Judges 8 after the battle. And the question is, what changes Gideon? And I would suggest to you that it is success that has changed Gideon. I want to consider with you the profound changes in Gideon as a result of success. Success changes most people. Billionaire Warren Buffett is one of the wealthiest men in the world, and yet he lives in the same house he bought 60 years ago. I read that on CNBC, and... You know, you may ask, why is that newsworthy? It's newsworthy because most people who become billionaires develop a billionaire lifestyle. But 60 years ago, Warren Buffett bought a five-bedroom stucco house built in 1921 in Omaha, Nebraska for $31,500. And he hasn't moved since. And over the years, he doesn't plan on upgrading to a more expensive house anytime soon. He said this, this house does just fine. I'm warm in the winter. I'm cool in the summer. It's convenient for me. I couldn't imagine having a better house. I mean, as you know, Warren Buffett is the CEO of Berkshire Hathaway. He's worth $106 billion, but he has not upgraded his lifestyle. And it's newsworthy because financial success changes most people. It's a Harvard Business Review article from 2018 entitled, Why Great Success Can Bring Out the Worst Parts of Our Personalities. And just a quick summary, it articulates four psychological factors that develop when you achieve success that can derail you. And as I I go through this, I think most of us would agree. So number one, it's overconfidence. Exceptional success can lead to a diluted self-perception. 
Success can make you blind to your limitations, overly pleased with yourself, and therefore vulnerable to hubris. Number two, narcissism. Success creates such a flattering image of yourself, you became a celebrity in your own mind. To the point that if you're questioned or challenged, you react aggressively and double down even more. How dare they say that to me? Do they know who I am? Number three, isolation. It's hard to speak truth to power. Success tends to isolate people from negative feedback because the more status and power that you accrue, the more you intimidate others and only surround yourself with yes people. Four, reduce self-control. Success insulates you from the consequences of failure. You can do anything you want and get away with it. So here's a, here's a summary. Great success, this article says, leads to overconfidence and narcissism and isolation and reduced self-control. And as I say that, I think most of us would say, yeah, at a certain point that does happen. I can think of really successful people where I see some of these things happen. That person over there that's really successful, that's, this article describes them. But we say that wouldn't happen to me. I can handle success and I won't be changed. But Gideon in Judges 8 shows us that it can happen to anyone. Gideon is from the weakest clan in Manasseh, he's the least in his family, and yet success changes him. My friends, I think we all long for success, don't we? We all work for success, academic success, career success, ministry success, financial success. But what we need to realize is that there are dangers that come along with that success. Gideon, in Judges 8, shows us the spiritual danger of success. And I want to point out two, you can become too big and God can become too small. You can become too big and God can become too small. Let's look at these two dangers, spiritual dangers of success. First, you can become too big. At the beginning of Judges 8, Gideon starts off well. When the Midianites are fleeing from Gideon, Gideon calls the men, men of Ephraim to help him pursue the Midianites, but the Ephraimites are offended. Verse 1, the Ephraimites ask Gideon, why have you treated us like this? Why didn't you call us when we went to fight Midian? And they challenged him vigorously. Ephraim was one of the most powerful tribes in Israel, and so they were offended that they were not included in this battle, and they were uh, they're offended they, that therefore they could not bask in the glory of victory. Gideon responds very humbly and graciously. He's like, actually, you've accomplished way more than I have because you have captured these, these Midianite leaders. And he says, you guys have done great things. And, and so he, he calms the Ephraimites down. Proverbs 15.1, a gentle answer turns away wrath. That's pretty much what Gideon does. But then beginning in verse 4, this different side of Gideon starts coming out. Gideon is in pursuit of Ziba and Zalmunna, these kings of Midian. And he and his men are exhausted. They're wiped out. And he goes and asks some towns for food. He goes to the men of Sukkoth. And, and he says, give my troops bread. We're worn out and we're per still pursuing these two kings of Midian. And the men of Sukkoth respond. They, they say, have you captured these kings yet? Because if you haven't, we can't help you. See, they're not at all sure that Gideon is going to be successful. He still only has 300 men. And these two Midianite kings have 15,000 men with them. The odds are against them. They know if Gideon doesn't succeed, there's a risk in helping him. 
they risk retribution from these two kings if they come back into power for helping Gideon. So they say, if you haven't captured these kings yet, sorry, we can't help you. And Gideon hears that, and he flies into a rage. He says, just for that, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will tear your flesh and de- with desert thorns and briars. And you say, yikes. Where does that come from? No longer is Gideon the, the weak, fearful man we see in, in Judges 6 and 7. Now we see Gideon with a hair-trigger temper. Gideon's changed. Gideon, evidenced by this quick-trigger temper, assumes that he is owed support and food. Gideon now plays himself off as a victorious returning general who deserves gratitude and praise. And when people don't give it to him, he flies into a rage. I mean, evidence that this is not just a one-off change. Same thing happens when Gideon goes to the town of Peniel and asks for food. They respond the same way as the men of Sukkoth. And Gideon responds the same way. He says, when I return in triumph, I will tear down this tower. Again, this hair-trigger temper. Success has made Gideon a proud man with a quick temper. Gideon follows through on this threat. He attacks Zeba and Zalmunna when they are not suspecting it. He pursues them, captures them, and routes the whole army. And then he captures a young man from Sukkoth, and he gets the name of 77 officials and elders from the town of Sukkoth. And he brings Zeba and Zalmunna to them and says, here are the two kings I've captured that you taunted me about and you refused me bread. I'm going to teach you a lesson. And he teaches them a lesson with desert thorns and briars. With Peniel, he pulls down a tower and kills the men of the town. I remind you, these are not enemies. These are not the Midianites. These are his own people that he takes his anger out on. It gets worse. He asked Zeba and Zalmunna, what kind of men did you kill at Tabor? And they say to him, men like yourself, with the bearing of a prince. And Gideon says, those were my brothers. And so we learn that these Midianite kings have killed Gideon's own brothers, which then explains the dynamics of this chapter. It explains the intense pursuit of these two kings to the point of exhaustion. Gideon is no longer motivated by God's glory. He's no longer motivated by trying to deliver God's people from their enemies. You know what animates Gideon in this chapter? It's personal revenge. It's a personal vendetta. He's got a score to settle. He's got payback to issue. And so Gideon goes to these two kings and says, If you spared my brother's lives, I would not kill you. And then he turns to his own son, Jether, and asks them to kill these two kings as a way of humiliating them by being killed by a mere boy. Jether is a mere boy, and he's afraid. He doesn't pull his sword. He's like, actually like his dad in, in, Gideon, in, in Judges 6. He's afraid. He's, he's weak. He's timid. And so Zeba and Zalmunna see this, say, see this, and they say, well, come do it yourself if you're man enough. Gideon hears this, and he draws his sword, and he kills them in cold payback. See, in Jether, we see a glimpse of the old Gideon. Weak, humble, scared. This is a new Gideon, changed by success into a proud man with a hair-trigger temper, bent on revenge. Gideon has become too big. Success has made him too full of himself. We have to ask ourselves, could this happen to us? I read an article recently by Jake Medor. 
It's an interesting article reflecting on the fracturing taking place in our little corner of the church in the past 10 years. Gone are the heady days of what's been called the Acts 29 Network when there was a booming church planning uh, movement in the mid-2000s. Uh, there was this movement called the Reformed Resurgence, or the New Calvinism, or Young, Restless, and Reformed. Gone are those days. Now we hear about too many pastors stepping down due to infidelity or bullying. Churches are dividing over politics, emptying out or falling apart. And Jake Meter asks, what is the reason for this fracturing? And one of the reasons he suggests is the challenge of the young Gen X pastors in the 2000s and, and the challenges they faced. One of the things that was happening technologically, it was the beginning of sermon podcasting. It was a time before uh, smartphones, before social media boomed. These young Gen X pastors were early adopters of sermon podcasting. It enabled them to develop fairly large digital platforms at a very young age, very early in their pastoral ministry. The dangerous thing about this is that their talent was confused with maturity and character. Jake Medor says, observes they were given a big, plat big platform when they were young before they could handle it. They experienced success before they had the character and maturity to bear the weight and temptation of success. And so often their ministries ended in scandal. Medor interestingly compares these young successful Gen X pastors to the previous generation. Tim Keller, for example, didn't publish his first book until he was 58. John Piper didn't publish his first book until he was 42. And it wasn't until he was 40, uh, 54 when one of his sermons went viral. All that to say, they had a long period of ministry in quiet obscurity, developing character and maturity before they became well-known. One of the spiritual dangers of success is that you become too big. And if you don't have the maturity and character to handle it, success can destroy you. There's a story in ancient Rome that when a victorious general would return to Rome and they would have a parade in their honor, they would place a servant in his chariot to whisper in his ear, memento mori, remember you're mortal. Remember you're only a human. Remember you will one day die. So that success wouldn't go to their heads. Like Gideon, success can sometimes go to our heads and make us too big. And the telltale signs of this is a hair-trigger temper. Are we, are, is it take very little things that we fly off into a rage? Just the slightest insult and correction and we bristle. How dare you say that to me? How dare you do that? Perhaps it's masking a deep pride and we become too big. Do you look at everyone around us and think they're there to serve me? They're there to meet my needs. Perhaps we become too big. Are we consumed by revenge? Driven constantly by personal vendettas, settling scores and getting even. Perhaps we become too big. Gideon becomes too big because he's forgotten the God's grace in his life. That it's God who has called him and equipped him and given him the success that he enjoys. My friends, the way that we resist becoming too big is remembering God's grace in our lives. It's by grace we've been saved, not of ourselves. It's the gift of God so that no one can boast. 
It's by grace that we are able to do good works. We are God's handiwork, his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works. It's by grace that we do the good that we do. It's by grace that we've received the gifts and the opportunities that we have. It's by grace that we enjoy success. And perhaps we need someone to whisper in our ears in the midst of success. Remember God's grace. Remember how you got here. It's God's grace. There is a danger to success, a spiritual danger. It's that we become too big. The second danger of success is that God becomes too small. Because Gideon leads the Israelites to victory over the Midianites, the people come to him and say, rule over us, your son and your grandson, rule over us because you have saved us from the hand of Midian. And I just want to pause and, and point out some significant things that happen in this request. The first is a very subtle thing. Notice the people say, you have saved us from our enemies. They don't say the Lord has saved us from our enemies. You, Gideon, have saved us from our enemies. And they give credit to Gideon for the great victory that they have enjoyed. Verse 34, at the end of our passage, it says, they did not remember the Lord their God, who had rescued them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. And that forgetting begins, I think, here, when they give credit for the victory to Gideon instead of God. Gideon does not cor correct them, and therefore he accepts this praise. And I think it's in our lives when we begin taking credit for our successes. Instead of giving credit to God, God becomes, starts becoming too small. In this request, they're asking Gideon to become their king. I think it's a rejection of God as king. The role of the judges was not to become a king. It was to rescue the people and to restore them to the rule of God. And by asking Gideon to become a king, they are rejecting God as king. And God is becoming too small. Look at how Gideon responds. It's interesting. Gideon says, I will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. He says the right thing. But then look at what he does next. He asks the people for earrings from their plunder. He collects what is amounts in our terms, 43 pounds of gold, and he makes it into a gold ephod in Ophrah, his hometown. It has echoes of Exodus 32 when Aaron makes a golden calf. The ephod was the garment worn by the high priest at the tabernacle in Shiloh, and it was used for providing divine guidance. And perhaps Gideon was thinking, you know, if the Lord's going to rule over us, I've got to make it more convenient for the people to worship. You know, maybe it's like this. Uh, this weekend, I went to the mobile DMV unit to apply for a real ID. The, the DMV sent out a mobile unit to our town so that I could just go there. It was so much more convenient than having to go to the DMV. And perhaps Gideon's thinking about setting up a mobile tabernacle. It'll be more convenient for the people. But of course, there are problems with this. Gideon is making an ephod, and that was a priestly role and responsibility, and Gideon's not a priest. God established the tabernacle at Shiloh, and he did not tell Gideon to make another place of worship at Ophrah. Gideon's going out on his own here, essentially making up his own religion. 
And the evidence of that is the ephod becomes an idol for Israel. They begin, begin worshiping this gold ephod more than they worship God, and it becomes a snare for Gideon and his family. Gideon essentially leads the people away from God and one step closer to Baal. So that what happens in verse 33, when Gideon, verse 33, no sooner had Gideon died than the Israelites again prostituted themselves to the Baals. They set up Baal Barit as their God. God has become too small. How could Gideon say the Lord will rule over you and yet create a golden ephod? All we can say is this, Gideon knows God intellectually. He has the right theology, he has the right words, he says the right things. But God doesn't rule his heart. God doesn't rule his daily actions and his lifestyle. Gideon says that he's not going to rule in Israel, but then he acts like a king. And we were told at the end of this passage that he has many wives and 70 sons. It's not a civilian life. That's a kingly life. One son he names Abimelech, which means my father is king. See, for Gideon in Israel, God has become too small. And this can happen to us subtly through success. Maybe the first step is starting to take credit for our own successes and victories. It's my strength that's done this. It's my gifts. Look at all this money that I've made with my abilities. And then when we take credit for our own successes, then it's not too far before we replace God with idols. We have the right theology. We say the right things. We have the right words. But there's a gold ephod in our lives. And then we become our own king instead of making God our king. My friends, there are spiritual dangers to success when we become too big and God becomes too small. Great preacher George Whitfield one day was handed a note right before his sermon at the Tottenham Road Chapel in London. And the note said this, The prayers of this congregation are desired for a young man who has become heir to an immense fortune and who feels much need for grace to keep him humble in the midst of his riches. We pray in the midst of failure, don't we? Help. Help me, God. Help keep me from discouragement and despair. But do we pray in the midst of our successes? Help, God. Help me. Would you keep me from pride and from forgetting you? See, there is a spiritual danger of success when we become too big and God becomes too small. C.J. Stroud, many of you will know that. Sports fans will know who that is. He's a rookie quarterback of the Houston Texans. He was the second overall pick in last year's NFL draft. He was named this season the 2023 NFL Offensive Rookie of the Year. He's one of the rising stars of the NFL, and he's a Christian. And he regularly gives credit to God for his success. Before he answers a question, he'll often say this. First and foremost, I want to give all the glory and praise to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In one post-game press conference this season, he said this. A lot of people don't get to live the life I do. It's hard, don't get me wrong. It's hard, but it's a privilege. I'm blessed enough to wake up every day to walk, to talk, to smell, to interact with people, to play football. These are all things we take for granted from a day-to-day -day basis, but I tried to do my best to thank God through all that because of his grace and his mercy. 
See, he's trying to remember God in the midst of his success. And of course, there will be a danger and there will be a challenge as he becomes more successful and more famous. Will he still remember God? See, in our success, how do we not become too big and God not become too small? I point out again, verse 34, at the end of our passage. The people did not remember the Lord their God who had rescued them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. This is where they went wrong. They forgot that it was the Lord who rescued them on every side from all their enemies. And therefore, the way to keep God big in our lives is to remember. Remember the Lord who has rescued us from our enemies on every side. Remember the gospel. Remember that God has saved us from an enemy greater than Midian through a deliverer greater than Gideon. God has saved us from sin and death and the devil, through his own son, our great deliverer, Jesus Christ. Remember that. Remember the gospel. Remember the grace that we've been shown. Remember that it's God who has made us who we are. It's God who has given us the gifts and opportunities to, be accomp to, to accomplish, to find success, so that in our success, we do not become too big, and God does not become too small. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this example of Gideon and the dangers of success. Lord, would you help us to recognize that our worth is not in ourselves. Our ultimate worth is in you and your grace poured out on us. Help us, Lord, not to boast in ourselves, to boast in Jesus Christ and his grace to us. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.